I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is the serial entrepreneur Jack Dorsey. He's the co-founder of Twitter, a social networking media service launched in 2006. Twitter has over 500 million users internationally. The company gained global recognition when it facilitated the Iranian protests of the presidential election in 2009. Jack is also the co-founder of Square, a mobile payments company that allows any merchant to accept payments through a device that plugs into their smartphone's headphone jack. The company started by working with micro-merchants or small business owners who didn't traditionally have the ability to accept credit cards, but it has grown rapidly to include other services and larger businesses, such as Starbucks, as well. Jack is a former massage therapist. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start with your personal life because I think it helps to inform the choices that you've made later on. You grew up in Missouri, in St. Louis, mm-hmm. And you had a particularly close relationship with your parents, especially your mother. Can you talk about that? Yeah, my my uh, my parents have a very interesting story. And my my father, when he was uh, 19 years old, started a pizza restaurant with his best friend, and they called it Two Nice Guys. The business started doing very very well, and they needed to hire help, and they wanted to preserve their friendship and also the uh, the business. So they made one rule between the two best friends, which is they would not date the wait staff. Uh, and the first person they hired was my mother. My father um, fell in love uh, with my mother and went to his best friend and said, I broke the rule, uh, the business is yours, and I was born 10 months later. Mm. So my, my parents... Um, I've always had this edge of entrepreneurship. Uh, my mom later started a, a, a coffee store in St. Louis called Shenandoah Coffee. Mm-hmm. And um, my father has had a, a small business um, around medical devices for over over 25 years. Mm-hmm. So I've learned a lot about starting small and, and, and starting, starting one's own business from them. Obviously, you observe them being very entrepreneurial. Um, but what about emotionally? How, how was your relationship with them? Uh, it was great. You know, they they always uh, pushed me to to explore new things, and uh, I had a very meandering, wandering path throughout my life, uh, and and that was always something that was a uh, that was that was loved and and accepted. Um, but uh, I think I think technology, especially Twitter, has really deepened uh, our relationship. Why is that? Um, because when we first started Twitter, we got a lot of. Um, critique about it being used to talk about what one is having for breakfast, for instance. You know, to 99.9999% of the world, updates like that are, are, are useless. But my mother loves it. She loves knowing that I'm eating breakfast every day, and she, know, she loves knowing that I'm alive. And uh, it's these little things in life, the, these small details, that really bind us. We always know what's going on in each other's lives. It's ironic that you say Twitter's brought you closer because you focus on the mundane aspects of your day because that's exactly what Twitter has been criticized for. Like, who cares about that? And it's it's actually just that which has been the most important in, in your usage of it, vis-a-vis your mom, at least. I believe so. And also for, for public figures that we often put on on pedestals. You know, one of the one of the most compelling moments for me was watching on the campaign trail in, in two thousand eight, President Barack Obama talking about what he had for breakfast or just little details of his day. And I think that adds so much context that it rehumanizes people. 
technology was an important part of your life, you know, even when you were seven, eight, nine years old, and you had a particular interest in maps. Why were you drawn to maps so much? And how did technology tie in? My parents uh, always loved uh, the city. I just loved the the energy. I loved the dynamic range, how electric uh, it felt. So uh, in order to understand the city better, I, I, I developed this fascination with, with maps, uh, maps of New York, maps of St. Louis. My parents uh, bought a computer in 1984, Macintosh, when I was eight years old, and uh, I just fell in love with, with that technology as well because you could see things move around, and it wasn't just a, a static map, but I could actually start programming them, and I could uh, teach myself, and, and, and I did teach myself how to draw maps on the computer and then to draw dots moving around the map and then constrain them within streets, and uh, then I had all these dots moving around this this uh, this map, and I thought it was the most beautiful thing in the world, but the dots had no meaning whatsoever. So my parents had a police scanner. They had a CB radio. We lived right next to the highway, so I heard all this activity. And if you listen to an ambulance or a police car or a fire truck, they're always reporting where they are, what they're doing, and where they're going. So, And I could use that as input for my programs that I was writing to attribute meaning to one of those, one of those dots. And I could actually simulate its path through throughout the city, which was amazing because suddenly I could see the city living and breathing, and I added more and more dimensions, taxis, black cars, couriers, and I eventually learned that this entire practice had a name in an industry which was called dispatch. Mm. So I, I, I made it uh, my life uh, to go after uh, and write dispatch software and, and find the biggest dispatch firm in the world, which happened to be here in New York City. You were engrossed in programming from an early age. What were you like socially at school? What was your reputation? Um, I was uh, I was more quiet than not. I went to all Catholic school for most of my life until until university. I really loved drawing. While you seem to have had a very nurturing, loving home environment, you had dreadlocks. You had blue hair. <laughs> You listen to punk rock. You had this nose ring. You have a big tattoo on your forearm. Do you have any other tattoos? Uh, I have. I have a tattoo of a, a star on my on my ankle. You have one on your ankle. Yep. Now, is this just emblematic of you know the the typical turmoil of adolescence, or was there there more going on? Well, I like uh, I like experimenting a lot, and I'm somewhat impulsive, so. Um, when uh, when I decide to do something, I, I pretty much go all in. So, I had uh, I had dreadlocks when I when I first moved to uh, San Francisco, um, and uh, I, I listened to a lot of uh, punk rock just because I liked the attitude. There wasn't there was an attitude in punk rock which really mirrored hacker culture, which was you you don't have to be perfect at performing. You don't have to be perfect at a in an instrument. You take a guitar and you get out there. And it seems like that's what you've done with with Square in a way. You had no not no background in financial services, but you said, you know what? Let's just take my guitar and get out there. Yeah, yeah. You 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 drive more by principle of what do you want to see in the world, mm. and you do whatever it takes to make sure that that happens. Incidentally, you you refuse to to learn how to drive as well. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was a big fan of uh, public transit because I I thought it was core to cities. The style that you that you carried, the, the dreadlocks and the the nose ring, et cetera, are particularly striking given the way you look today. Short hair, very clean shaven, sort of actually, not really, <laughs> yeah. and just 
very dapper. So you seem to have jumped into now this new new style. Well, I mean, I, I uh, you know, we we raised our first round at Twitter with uh, you know a, a tattoo and a nose ring. It doesn't change people's perception of of you that much. It was really about the merit of video, and 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 that's what I loved about it. You now run and meditate and eat well. Have you always been mindful of your health and fitness? When I was a when I was a kid, I, I developed this fascination with walking through my my aunt Eileen. She would walk all the time, and that was really my first form. Although I didn't know what I was doing of of meditation, because that's where I really go to when I when I want to think about something or think through something or or just get away. I, I take a walk. Did you run today? No, I did exercise. I do you, exercise every day. What yeah. did you do? Just simple stuff: jumping jacks. Uh, uh, jump rope, sit-ups, and push-ups. In your hotel room? In my hotel room. And you think you're alone. You're like, I'm the only one doing this. But actually... Oh, no. <laughs> no, I know I'm not alone. <laughs> I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jack Dorsey, co-founder of the social networking company Twitter and Square, the mobile payments company. Jack eats two hard-boiled eggs with soy sauce every morning. You left uh, University of Missouri uh, during college and moved to New York City. And this is after you hacked the system of a public company mm. called DMS, Dispatched Management Service. And the CEO was impressed and said, come come to New York. Mm. So you transferred to NYU and you ended up working for this company. What was that experience like? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was great. So I, I always wanted to work in, dis- in dispatch. I always wanted to live in Manhattan. And I found the biggest dispatch firm in the world, which was uh, DMS. I found that they had this hole in their web server, and I emailed them, here's how you fix it. And I was flown out, and within a week I had a job. And we decided uh, to move to to San Francisco in 1999 and and start a a more web-focused dispatch company. In addition, uh, you also started together with Greg Kidd, uh, Mm -hmm. the founder of the company, an e-commerce software company that offered same-day deliveries. And it struck me that this was very early days and really the, the nascent stages of, of e-commerce. And the company was called DNet, and it, it, it ultimately didn't work out. Do you think it was just timing? I think it was timing. It was also um, we didn't really put the emphasis on engineering. We, we had very, very few engineers and, and a lot of salespeople. And it was just out of balance. Mm. Uh, also, we built the company at the same time the entire bubble was about to burst. I learned a lot from that experience. That was the first company that I really pushed and, and built. Um, I was a, I was a founder, but I wasn't running um, any of the company, and that's one of the things that that I took away from it. Uh, during this time, you know, moved to San Francisco. Your first startup did not go well. You had random programming jobs. You you built a dispatching service for the ferry service going mm-hmm. to Alcatraz, among other systems. Um, you became a massage therapist. Uh, you took sewing classes. Mm-hmm. This is all in the spirit of exploration. But was was there any? Um, jitteriness of feeling like, okay, my motor's really turning, but I'm really not making palpable linear progress? No, I, I never saw it that way. You know, programming is, a, is an art uh, and a craft that you stain your head a lot. You're not really working with your hands. Your hands are on the keyboard, but it's all mental. Every time I felt overwhelmed with that, I wanted to do something more with my hands. And, and I had all these kind of meandering paths to to allow me to be more tangible. My first was botanical illustration, and I I went back to programming, and then I started developing RSI, carpal tunnel, and um, I do have this tendency to uh, 
to want to learn something and go all into it. And, as you uh, said before. <laughs> as, as I said before, and uh, my friend suggested that I get a massage, and I said, oh, I got a massage, and it, it actually helped me, and I said, why not just uh, learn how to do this myself? So mm. I took a 1,000 hours of massage therapy and, and, and learned everything about the body, but then went back to programming because I always have this draw to uh, to create through through that medium and, and did the same thing with... Uh, with uh, with sewing and, and and denim specifically because I just love I love denim because it takes on the wear of someone's life, but eventually went back to programming. By the way, my husband has this motto: "Nihil in moderado," which is nothing in moderation. <laughs> you should like tattoo that on your other arm. <laughs> or everything in moderation. <laughs> Perhaps. Nothing is everything. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jack Dorsey, co-founder of Twitter and the financial services company Square. We'll hear more from Jack coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is the internet entrepreneur Jack Dorsey. He's the founder of Twitter, the social media company that allows users to send messages using no more than 140 characters. He's also the founder of the mobile payments company Square. Other names considered for Square were seashells, an early currency people used to exchange goods, and squirrel, the idea being that people gather funds from others in the same way that squirrels gather acorns. In 2005, you got a more traditional job uh, at a company called Odeo, uh, which was a podcast directory company, which ultimately didn't do well because iTunes came out with their service. And through this turmoil, uh, you developed Twitter, although the seeds for Twitter were kind of in your back pocket in 2000 when you initially had the idea for something that became Twitter. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what that germ was in 2000? Briefly, well, leading from leading from dispatch, you know, I had this uh, I had this beautiful picture of the city, but uh, I was missing the people, and I was a, I was a big fan of instant message, uh, in, instant messenger as well, with especially around uh, statuses. So I'm on a call, I'm in a meeting, I'm listening to this particular song. So the idea was to be able to take something small like that and to take it anywhere. And I had the first uh, BlackBerry device, the RIM850. And I coded up a little, I programmed a little uh, service that took an email from that device and uh, it would send it out to all my friends. And I was living in San Francisco at the time. I went to Golden Gate Park. There's a bison paddock with, with bison roaming around in Golden Gate Park in the middle of the city. And I went there and I said, I'm at the bison paddock in, in Golden Gate Park. And it was sent out to all my friends via email. And I quickly learned that, uh, number one, no one cared. And, and number two, uh, no one else had a, has a, had a BlackBerry device. It was, uh, it was an interesting idea, but it was ahead of its time a bit. And the technology just was not there. The technology wasn't there until 2006. So in 2006, sure enough, uh, I was introduced to SMS uh, at Adodio. And SMS, short messaging service, text messages, was just a beautiful technology I fell in love with. It had this great constraint of 160 characters. It worked on every single phone out there. The idea came back up. Uh, what if we just took text messaging and we enabled anyone to text a service and then it would go out to all the people that cared about it? You mentioned that you like the constraint of 160 characters of texting. You've always seemed to have an appreciation for minimalism. Growing up, your mom said that when you moved into your new home, you chose the smallest room and, and you had two younger brothers. Uh, I don't like having a lot of stuff. I don't like carrying around a lot. I, I like... Uh, 
I like a lot of simplicity and, and really just comes down to not having to carry much in the world. So I'm a person who, you know, when when I find a watch, it's going to be the watch for the rest of my life. And when I find a bag, you know, I'll keep it for 15, 20 years. Now, was your love of these 160 characters, you think, consistent with your minimalism? Or what, why did you love the 160? We, we, uh, I, I love the 160 because I do like constraint. If I give you a paintbrush uh, and I tell you to go paint uh, this huge canvas I have on the wall, it's somewhat intimidating and you're going to be very thoughtful and composed about it. If I give you that same paintbrush and I give you the back of a business card and tell you to make a mark, you'll make a mark. Um, so there's something interesting about um, making the canvas size small and making it more approachable. And then it becomes more of the moment, becomes more expressive, and, and every mark, therefore, is, is beautiful and useful to someone. I was not someone who really enjoyed uh, blogging because the format was just too long and, and, and unconstrained, whereas, uh, whereas with uh, 160 characters, which we then pulled down to 140 characters, um, there was a nice constraint, and I could be more of the moment, and, and there was more creativity because I had to fit it all in. Why did you then uh, pick 140, 140 characters for Twitter? Was that arbitrary? Well, there are two reasons. Uh, the 160 was uh, was purely practical in, in the sense that we wanted to work on every device out there. So a $5 cell phone in the middle of Kenya uh, could also receive a message from anywhere in the world. And also that constraint inspires creativity concept. So we took 20 characters out for uh, a username and for some syntax, and we arrived at 140 characters. And Twitter, the name, uh, the definition is, uh, inconse- I think it's uh, inconsequential bursts of information. Yes, yes, and, and, and chirps from birds. Right. Yeah. And some other uh, names you flirted with, uh, Jitter and, and Twitch. Twitch. Right. Uh, they don't bring up the best imagery. Mm. <laughs> so at the time, you were working with Ev Williams and Biz Stone, uh, who had worked at a company called Blogger, sold to Google. And you were made CEO. Um, and prior to that, you were a contractor for mm. them. Why did they think that, that you should be CEO? You were very young. You had no leadership experience. By the way, I should mention uh, Noah Glass was involved yes. as well. So Noah was the the co-founder of Odeo, and and Ev was the CEO. And as soon as iTunes launched the directory, the the company became directionless. So brought up the idea for Twitter, and we built it in two weeks. And the first tweet was actually inviting coworkers, which were inviting my coworkers from Odeo to to join me. And, um, you know, the reason that I became CEO is because I was was leading the product, and I was leading the direction. And it made sense, and we had about seven people at that time. And how are you feeling at the time? Uh, you know, you, you were programming, but you were also managing. Were you like, okay, like, I'm owning this. I'm good at it. It wasn't really uh, something that I thought about. I, I thought about just building the product. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't something that you had to manage necessarily. I actually think managing is, a, is somewhat of a reactive word. It's uh, something like I have to manage the situation uh, you, you versus coach editing or build. Or editing edit. uh, editing is, a, is another good one. So very particular about the words that we use in, in the companies. And uh, I think that sets the tone for everything. What were your ambitions uh, for Twitter? How much of an, an impact did you think it would have? Well, it's, it's, it's fairly selfish. I, I wanted to go back to that idea of uh, maps, and I wanted to see the world. I wanted to see how the world was feeling. I wanted to see what it was doing. Were you surprised when President Obama adopted it for his town halls, and uh, the Iranian protesters used it to the extent that the U.S. State Department asked you to keep the service running when you were going to do a, a, a maintenance, and Rupert Murdoch's using it. Um, talk to me about your level of surprise or... 
Well, every uh, every day there's a there's a new surprise and, and something that we find really really delightful about how people are using it. So people tweet by tweet change how they think about it and uh, how the world thinks about the service and 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 that to me shows something that's going to last because it's like electricity. It's something that we don't really think about unless we're talking about it, mm. unless it goes down. Uh, otherwise, we plug in a microwave oven, we plug in an electric guitar, a keyboard, um, you know, a, a, a seat warmer, whatever. Um, but it's always there, it's always useful, and we can have all these different experiences based on how we perceive it and, and based on how we use it. Ev Williams uh, asked you to leave as CEO. Was that a surprise to you, or what was your reaction? Well, we uh, we switched roles. Um, so Ev, uh, Ev really wanted to be CEO, and he was our chairman, and I became chairman, and he became CEO. So it was a it was a different, uh, certainly different perspective. It was uh, it was surprising and, and and also freeing at the same time. You seem uh, very measured and unflappable, um, but was that is that really like I'd I'd love to just dig into your your emotional state. Was it like okay, well that's that's a, that's disappointing, but oh, no, it's no, a no. blessing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was a it was a hard departure. You know, it was something that I that I loved that I've been thinking about since I was a kid, um, and to not be as directly involved was certainly. Uh, extremely, extremely challenging and, and devastating for me for, for quite some time. Uh, but you have to get over it. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jack Dorsey, the co-founder of the social networking company Twitter, and Square, a mobile payments company that, among other attributes, offers a micro-merchant payment acceptance service that allows any business owner to accept payments from customers. Merchants are charged a flat 2.75% for each transaction, which is lower than the typical fee that payment processors have historically charged. The company offers Square Register, which turns mobile devices into a point-of-sale system, providing inventory management, customer tracking, and other business analytics. Square Wallet allows customers to buy products, such as Starbucks coffee, without having to use their actual credit card. You founded Square with a partner, Jim McKelvey, who is a glass blower, mm-hmm. and he was your first boss in in Missouri. You you worked for him as one of your odd jobs, mm-hmm. uh, helping him with his back office maintenance, yeah. essentially. Yeah. How did you and Jim come to the idea of Square? Jim is a is a glass blower. He he kind of departed engineering. He he was building companies before, and that's a company I work for. And uh, he really got into glass blowing, and he was he was doing it, um, and he was selling these uh, these glass faucets for and, and pieces of glass, and he would sell them for two thousand dollars a piece. And one day, someone called him up and wanted to buy one, but he couldn't accept a credit card. He couldn't accept an Amex card, and uh, he lost a sale because of it. Ninety percent of this country at least is paying with plastic debit cards credit cards prepaid cards so if you don't accept plastic you you miss out on sales people go elsewhere so we just found it funny that one could not just download an app today and start accepting credit cards and we decided to uh to take a month and to figure out um, if we could uh, build a system around it. Now, uh, you had been noodling on other ideas prior to choosing to, to move forward with Square. One other idea he had was to build an electric car company. Yes, we were we were looking at everything. I actually wasn't looking at finance much at all because uh, I really have no basis for it. Um, I don't understand it. You launched uh, at an auspicious time, ironically. It was in 2008 uh, at the time of the crash. Can you describe that a little more? Yeah, there were there were a lot of uh, auspicious uh, pointers to what we were doing. First, I was living across the street from the U.S. Mint in San Francisco, 
coincidentally. Uh, which, is, which is a very auspicious location to start a payments company, and it's purely coincidence. There's no better time to create something than in a depression or a recession because people are resetting. They're a little bit more willing to, to take a look at new things. Although, uh, you know, venture capitalists might not feel like it's a very favorable time. Uh, people are, you know, keeping their wallets close. You know, people thought, oh, you're the Twitter guy. You know, this is this is random to do financial services. What do you think convinced them? Showing them the product. So, you know, the best thing was we, we built this system in a month and we could start accepting credit cards. And they said, wow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I did approach a lot of VCs and investors with this idea. And uh, and they did push back. You you worked on uh, you worked on quote unquote microblogging. You worked on something that people used to talk about what they had pr- for breakfast. Why do you think you can move billions of dollars around uh, in a financial market? What role did the Golden Gate Bridge uh, have in just you know being wallpaper, uh, to helping to, to influence your your motivation, if any, if any? Absolutely. We we look we live in a very fortunate area in San Francisco, and uh, we look to the Golden Gate Bridge all the time because it's not just the end product that is gorgeous and amazing and iconic um, and, and a wonder, but also the way they built it. They built it in 1934. They gave themselves five years. They built it in three years. The only 1,300 people worked on the bridge. Um, they did it with $33 million, um, which is about $1.2 billion in today's money. Mm. Um, so epic scale. And it's a 1.7-mile span uh, across one of the t- most tumultuous areas on the West Coast. And then there's earthquakes. It's it's the last place on the planet that you want to build a bridge. So, you know, at, at its very core, a bridge is utility. It gets people from point A to point B. And at its very core, Square and, and, and Twitter is a utility. It gets uh, either communication from point A to point B or or uh, money from point A to point B. And, and they have a lot of parallels. And if it does that well, it disappears. Um, but if people really notice it, it's it's something that is breathtaking and, and they appreciate it. So we want to build something that uh, that is similar to that idea. Along those lines, uh, the Square's card reader was inducted into the Museum of Modern Arts archive uh, in two- 2011. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Skeuomorphism? <laughs> yes. What is that? Skeuomorphism is, is a practice and design to, uh, through uh, digital interfaces to refer to real interfaces. I, I think there's a great balance of, of referencing something that we know as we go into something new, which is digital. And that's what we're trying to do at Square. A lot of our, a lot of our products reference um, real objects because it establishes trust. It's an opening. With Square uh, Register, we you know the thing actually looks like a, a paper pad, and, and, and we have a, a page turn uh, as you're ripping off a ticket. Um, Square Wallet, there's references to cards, uh, there's references to uh, to leather, um, and uh, just hints at them. Um, but that's really all it takes. Uh, and they hint at them so that people don't feel as intimidated to to try them and to adopt them. Yeah, there's there's a warmth to to things we know and to things we're used to. I want to go uh, back to the to the early days of Square. Um, you saw a hole in the financial service market where micro merchants or small businesses weren't able to accept credit cards because the payments to credit card companies were just too onerous. What was Amex and Mastercard and Visa's response? Response to your entering. So there's eight million entities, eight million businesses that accept credit cards in the United States alone. But there's over 26 million small businesses who don't. So they saw it as a way to extend their network. Um, 
at the end of the day, what 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 they care about the most is removing cash uh, and moving more to electronic payments. So they saw Square as a way to really advance that uh, that that agenda. Your your first few merchants were uh, Sight Glass, which is this uh, coffee shop in San Francisco. You're an investor in, mm-hmm. as well as a florist. Mm-hmm. Who who else were some of the earliest? We had yeah, the, uh, Sight Glass, which was just a coffee cart, a flower cart named Lily Bell. And uh, a, a flight instructor, actually, and uh, and that was it. Starbucks was your first larger business, uh, which has opened up a completely new uh, array of uh, of partners for you. How did that happen? Did Howard Schultz approach you, or did you approach them? What's the story there? Uh, Howard uh, Howard and Starbucks actually approached us, and and they said, you know, we've been looking at uh, a lot of um, payment companies, and we've been looking at really moving uh, ahead uh, in terms of how we're thinking about mobile payments specifically. We would love for you to come up to Seattle and tell us about Square. So we went up there and uh, we just had a great meeting. You, in less than a year, built the hardware and the payment network and the risk systems and the customer service and the web services, and you coordinated all these systems all from scratch, basically. Mm-hmm. All from scratch. We built uh, we built Square and, and made it operational in under nine months. And then Starbucks was very similar. So what are some hiccups that you've had in the early days? Because it seems like things have been pretty seamless. Some of the some of the hiccups that we saw was, you know, it took us a lot longer than, than normal to actually get the credit card processing infrastructure out. We had to go through a lot of regulation. So we first launched Square as a cash-only register. And people knew about Square before that, and, and the promise was you could accept credit cards anywhere. So uh, the people that, that were really cheering for us are, said, you know, what's going on? And it took us another five months to actually roll out the credit card processing. What about um, because you're trying to do so much, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of competitors who are going to be innovating and probably conventionally people might say, well, why don't you just focus on one aspect of this payment process instead of trying to build the entire system? What is your response to that? Well, we do see it as a focus, but we see it as a different focus. Going back to the Golden Gate Bridge, if we want to build something truly magical, we have to build that entire span. Right, uh, it has to be end to end. So a lot of our competitors are building a credit card terminal, or a point of sale, or a cash register, or a payment network, or a bank, um, or coupons, whatnot. And and they're all disconnected. They're all separate companies, and they're all separate systems. And when you try to, when when a merchant or a or a buyer, a customer tries to put all these together, they don't really fit together. They're not seamless. Um, and you start noticing the uh, the seam points. So our focus is building that entire span. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's still a simplicity around that. Might you be a tender type one day and replace a MasterCard or a Visa? Well, um, I, you know, that, that's not what we're optimizing for. There's, there's certain, uh, certainly a potential or a reality for that. But our idea has always been we're always, going to, we're always going to accept the payment device, the tender that comes over the counter, because that means the merchant is always getting the sale. So going from, you know, these financial complexities to your mom, um, does she use Square? She does. Just yesterday, I sent my mom a gift card from uh, from here in New York uh, to her favorite bookstore, Left Bank Books, uh, in the Central West End. And I sent my father a, a week of cappuccinos to his favorite coffee company, Sump Coffee, uh, in uh, in the city. And I, I've heard that you text or maybe tweet with your mom daily. What was the last uh, mundane 
communication you you had with her? No, my my mom is uh, usually the first person that texts me in the morning, and the last person that texts me uh, every day. They just moved uh, to a new uh, to a new condo that's right on the Mississippi River, so she usually sends me pictures of the of the sunrise or the sunset. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Jack Dorsey. Coming up, we'll meet A.B. Short, co-founder of MedShare, a medical equipment redistribution organization. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. <laughs>